Tonight we are in Romans 8, 29 and 30. Romans 8, 29 and 30. I will read verse 28 as uh, even last week as we connected 28, if we connected that to verse 29, uh, we're going to do that a little bit tonight as well, even though our focus is going to be uh, only on 29 and 30. Let's just read 28 for the sake of that context. Um, and then we'll, I'll pray and we'll jump in, okay? So, Romans 8, starting in 28, but focus on 29 30. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. All right, so a lot in there indeed. Let me pray uh, for God's grace for us this evening. Lord God, uh, we are humbled as we approach your word tonight. Lord, who are we to uh, even understand? God, we need your spirit and your grace Lord, to give us an understanding of your word. God, I need your grace and your strength, God, that I would uh, speak clearly and accurately your truth. Lord, your gospel is such a beautiful thing. We pray that we would clearly see your gospel tonight, that you would be exalted, you would be glorified and praised. Lord, speak to us through your word. By your Holy Spirit, convict our hearts. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Years and years ago, uh, when I was younger, we used to vacation, I guess, a lot more than I do now. Um, and I don't remember where we were. I think it was somewhere in Mexico. Maybe it was Hawaii. I think it was Mexico. I don't remember where. It doesn't really matter. But one of the days, we took a little like ferry boat to a private island. And it was just like, like you bought like that excursion or something. So it's just like you know a few families or something. And you get to go to this island for pretty much the whole day. And, like, you, you kind of do whatever you want and, and have, like, you know, it was just, it was fun, you, whatever. So when we get there, uh, me and my, my older brother, we see, like, these coconut trees. And we love coconuts. And we're, like, and there's coconuts all on the ground, like, everywhere. And I was, like, do we get to eat the coconuts? Like, we, we can have the coconuts? And they're, like, yeah, like, anything on this island. Like, you, you can do it, you can have, like, whatever. Like, you can have the coconuts. And we're, like, sweet. And so we go over there, like, and... We grab the coconut and we're like, but now what? <laughs> like, how do we eat it? And they're like, well, you have to open it if you want to eat it. Has anyone ever tried opening a coconut? Okay, it's like impossible. Okay, as a kid, I didn't know this. All right, so we tried. We found one coconut. We tried for hours. I mean, we have this beautiful private island, and all we're doing is trying to open a coconut. For hours, I mean, we tried everything i mean first we're like you know trying to like rip it open like that's what we're gonna do like we're like 10 years old ripping a coconut open okay that obviously didn't work we tried like throwing it against the coconut tree that didn't work we tried like found like a branch or something hitting it that didn't work we got like a giant rock and was like smashing it and that didn't work like nothing we did could break the coconut for real and so eventually we just gave up and we never got our coconut now, while that coconut was 
unbreakable, at least for us. I'm sure someone could have broken it. But for us, it was unbreakable. And as unbreakable as that coconut was, tonight we're going to look at something so unbreakable in this passage. Far more unbreakable than a coconut or far more unbreakable than anything else in this world or that you may have experienced. This passage, these two verses, presents an unbreakable chain, a chain of salvation. In fact, these two verses are often referred to as the golden chain of five links. And this golden chain shows us God's incredible work in salvation and the complete security the Christian has in their salvation. And there are five links in this chain. They are foreknowledge, predestination, calling, justification, and glorification. Those are each of the links. And every single one of these links describes the work of God. Not the work of man, but the work of God. And the reason it's a chain, the reason these doctrines are linked together, is because you cannot have any of them by themselves, nor can you have any of them without the other. But they are linked together. They're linked together and will forever be linked together. God will always complete the work of this chain. And he will never waver and never fail to do so for the believer. This is the security behind this chain of salvation. That for the one in whom God foreknew, as he says... He predestined. And the one whom he predestined, he called. And the one he called, he justified. And the one he justified, he glorified. You can see just the chain as they connect to each other. And it's a chain that is unbroken. It's a chain that will always remain intact. It's a chain that shows us the security the Christian has in their salvation given by the power and the work of God. So tonight we're going to look at all five links in this golden chain, each describing a doctrinal truth of our salvation, each describing the work of God. So really quite simple. That's it. It's just five points, five links in this chain that we're going to look at. And that's it. And then our time will be done. So first, God foreknew. God foreknew. That's our first point, and that is our first link in the chain. Now, the doctrine of foreknowledge can easily be and often is misunderstood. Foreknowledge is comprised of two words, for, which means beforehand, and knowledge, or to know beforehand, would be foreknowledge, to know beforehand. And some people mistakenly understand this to mean that God knew beforehand who would believe in him and who wouldn't. And so because of that, he predestines and he chooses those who, who he could see would place their faith in him. And, and then he chooses to save them. That, that he looks down through time and says, they look good. Or he looks down through time and says, hey, they will place their faith in me. So knowing that ahead of time, I'm going to choose them now before the foundations of the world. This is not what this verse is teaching. Well, first off, this verse is not talking about that, that, that God foreknew what other people would do. 
In fact, it's not talking about what people do at all. That's not at all what this foreknowledge is. It's about what people do. Of course, he, he does know that. He does know, but that's not what this verse is talking about. It's completely talking about what God does, not what man does. And in addition to that, the object of this foreknowledge is not the action of people. It's not, it's not the action of them placing their faith in God. That's not the object of this foreknowledge. But rather, the object is the people themselves. You understand? It's not the action of believing. But it's the people themselves that God foreknew the Christian. Not the action. It says right here in verse 29, for those whom he foreknew. It's talking about a person. That he foreknew and set his special love and affection toward the Christian. The foreknowledge of God does not teach that God simply looks down through time and chooses those who would choose him. If this doctrine were to teach that God simply looks down through the dawn of time and knows beforehand how someone would respond to the gospel. And he said, okay, how is this person going to respond to the gospel? And then I'll determine their destiny based on that. Then what would he see? According to Romans 3, he would see that no one is righteous. No, not one. He would see that no one understands. No one seeks after God. He would see a dead man who rejects the gospel. What could God possibly see in the human heart or, or the human action or human response other than that of rejection and unbelief? So what is God's foreknowledge? I think it's a couple things. First, it's not foresight in that way, but rather it's foreordination. And there's a difference between foresight and foreordination. Not that he doesn't have foresight. I believe this is talking about foreordination, that he ordains in advance those who will be saved, that he ordains those who will have faith. See, when, when thinking about foreknowledge, we in our finite human minds often do God a disservice, I think, by bounding him to time. God exists outside of time. God does not simply know things beforehand. God knows, period. He knows all things, and he ordains all things. As Robert Haldane said, he said, God foreknows what will be by determining what shall be. You see? God foreknows what will be by determining what shall be. God is not reactive to our decisions. He is proactive. He is the one who ordains. He is the one who determines what shall be. He is the one who is in control. Like we looked at last week. And so we ask, so then did, does God foreknow and, and even ordain the terrible things in life? Suffering? Pain? Well, as we looked at last week, when we were in 28, let's examine again the most terrible thing that has ever happened in the history of mankind. The crucifixion of Christ. Did God ordain the crucifixion of Christ? Let's look at what it says in Acts 2.23. Acts 2.23 says, This Jesus... 
delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Did you hear that? This Jesus delivered up according to what? To the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. This was by God's definite plan and foreknowledge that Christ would be crucified. Now, these men did indeed crucify Christ, and they're responsible for their actions, yes. While at the same time, God foreknowing and ordaining this to happen. See, it's not just that, that God knew that it would happen, but God sent Christ to be crucified. God determined beforehand that this should happen. Why? To extend his love and to redeem his people. So he not only allowed, but he ordained that Christ would be crucified. And he ordained that Christians would be saved and would be washed by the blood of Christ. He ordained that Christ would be betrayed by his own people. He ordained that, that Christ would have a, a unjust trial. God ordained that Christ would be tied to a pole and beaten over and over again, whipped over and over again. He ordained that they would place the crown of thorns and press it into his skull. God ordained that Christ, his son, Jesus, would be mocked, would be spat upon. That he'd be crucified to a cross. That he would die. That was part of God's predetermined foreknowledge plan. Why? So that through faith in Christ, we would be saved. Why? Because he loved us. Because he loved us. Which brings us, I think, to the second part of what foreknowledge means. See, to foreknow is to love beforehand. It, it, it is to mean that God has set his special love on someone beforehand. That he has elected a certain people to be saved. In scripture, many times, to, to know someone refers to an intimate love, a relationship with someone. That's what it means to know them. And I think this is really the heart of foreknowing. When, when God has foreknown us, is that he has loved us beforehand. In Amos 3.2, God says, You only have I known of all the families of the earth, he says. You only have I known of all the families of the earth. It's not saying that God, he only has a knowledge of a certain group of people. This is the only family I, I know of. I don't know anyone else. i got to get out more. That's not what he's saying. Because obviously God knows all people. Not, not just the people of Israel. But this is talking about a group of people in whom he has chosen and has set his special love upon them. That he knows them in an intimate and personal way. That he has chosen to set his love upon him. And in the same way, those whom God has foreknown, he has chosen to set his special love upon them and save them from himself. So if you are a Christian... God has foreknown you, and you've been chosen by him, and you've been specifically loved by him. So then we ask, well, does, doesn't God love everyone? I thought God loved everyone. Yes, 
He does, but not all the same way. He loves everyone in the sense of that everyone's part of his creation and everyone's made in the image of God. And so, yes, he loves his creation, but he has a special love, a peculiar love towards his people, to Christians, a saving love, this kind of an intimate, knowing love, those whom he has foreknown. There's a difference. So what does it mean that God foreknew us? It means that God set his saving love upon us before time even began. Not according to our works, but according to God and his great grace. So he has foreknown us. He goes on to say, he says, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. In order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. So our second point is that God predestined. First we see that he foreknew. Now we see that he predestined. Now this is closely related to foreknowledge. And it might sound very similar. But it is different. This too is a combination of two words. Pre, meaning beforehand. And destination or, or destiny. It is to determine someone's destiny beforehand. See, while foreknowledge spoke of the love that was set upon us beforehand, it did not speak of the destination in which we've been appointed. Now, we're going to look at this more in the next chapter, chapter 9, so we're not going to get much into it tonight. But God, in his great wisdom and justice and mercy, has predestined where we, Christian and non-Christian, will go. What is the destiny that God has predetermined for the Christian? What is that destiny? Well, he says it right here in verse 29, that we would be conformed into the image of his son. This is part of our sanctification. This is part of what God has predetermined for the Christian. Just as we looked at last week, that even in our suffering, God works all things together for our good. Well, what is our good? That we would be conformed into the image of Christ. That God has predetermined and predestined that the Christian would be conformed into the likeness of Christ. This is our sanctification, Christian. But even greater than our sanctification here on earth, this is our ultimate destination in which we've been predestined to. That one day we will be made like Christ. Not in his deity, but we will be made like him as we will be made perfect just as Christ is perfect. That we will be without sin. That we will be holy and complete in Christ. And not only that, but he says that he, as in Christ will be the firstborn among many brothers. The end of verse 29. That Christ will be the firstborn among many brothers. In short, that states this, that Christ is preeminent. That's what he's saying. That he is above. That he is first. That he is among all his brothers and sisters. First among us all. Right? Because all Christians are brothers and sisters of Christ. But he is the firstborn. And so what that implies, that it is Christ who is to receive all glory. That it is Christ who will reign. That it is Christ who is the best. Philippians 2, 9 through 11, right after Paul talks about just the great, great example uh, and demonstration of humility through Christ. 
He says in verse 9, Therefore God has highly exalted him, being Christ, and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Christ will receive all glory. And so where is the Christian headed? Where is their destination? Right, to the new heavens and the new earth, where Christ is the firstborn among us all, in whom we will spend eternity exalting and worshiping and praising his name. And guys, there's going to be many, many things that we're going to be thankful for in the new heavens and the new earth. Right? I mean, we're like, man, I can't wait. Maybe I'll be able to fly. Like, right? We're like, all this stuff and all these great things. But there is nothing to be more thankful for than the privilege and the freedom and the ability to worship Jesus fully in all things in perfection throughout all of eternity. That's what it's about. That is what awaits us, Christian. That is what we have been predestined to. And it is God who has predestined us to do this. It is in his great wisdom and grace in which he has predestined every Christian to this. Now, we're not going to get into all the arguments about predestination and this and that. But some will argue that predestination takes away our freedom as human beings. That if if God predetermines where we go, then, then we have no freedom to choose for ourselves, would be the argument. And I think it's actually quite the opposite. We are free. And in our freedom, we choose sin. The Bible says there's no one who seeks God. The Bible says the sinful mind is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. See, in our freedom, we do not choose God. We choose sin. Predestination changes that within the believer. As James Boyce said, predestination does not take away freedom. It restores it. It is because God has foreknown me and predestined me that I am now free from the bondage of sin and free to live and serve him. I am so thankful that God has foreknown me and predestined me because if it were not for him doing so, then I would still be choosing to sin against him. And I would still be deep in my rebellion against him. Christian, I hope you never grow unthankful of God's work of salvation in your life. Where would we be if he did not choose us and and take us out of the pits of hell? And not take us out of the kingdom of darkness? We would still be there. But thanks be to God for his grace. God foreknew, God predestined. What does he say in verse 30? And those whom he predestined, he also called. So next, God called. God called. Now there are two types of call that we see in scripture. And it's important to know which Paul is referring to here. One type of call is an external, universal call. Alright, this is an open invitation to repent of your sins. Jesus has made this call many times. Matthew eleven twenty eight. 28. He says, Come to me, 
all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. This is a generic call to all. It's not a wrong call. In fact, it's a very good call. And indeed, we should be part of this call. It is our great obligation to declare the good news of the gospel, to preach Christ crucified, and to call others to faith and repentance. Right, you'll hear me. I do this on a weekly basis here at TYG. I know there are people in here who do not know Jesus. And so how can they? Unless they are called. Right, so I call people to faith and repentance in Jesus Christ. The issue, however, is that left to this call alone... The person will hear the call and they will leave and walk away the same. Why? Because they are spiritually dead. We've talked so much about that in Romans. I won't talk about Mr. Dead Guy. We know Mr. Dead Guy, right? He's dead. And so they may understand the gospel intellectually, but they remain dead. What? Apart from the work of God. If it's not for God working in their hearts, they will remain dead. This is why Jesus said, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. See, left alone with this call, this universal external call, we have nothing. We need the second call. The other type of call is an internal, effective call or specific call. And this is the call that Paul is referring to here. He's not referring to the universal call that we just discussed. He's talking about the effective call. This is God specifically drawing that person to himself, calling him by name, giving him eyes to see. That's this call. It is a call in which the believer then responds and responds in faith and repentance. That this person will be rocked. We'll be walking in rebellion away from God, right? Going away from him. But then we'll receive the call from God and we'll turn around. And then we'll start in faith and repentance, turn to God. Every believer has been called by God. And this calling gives the believer new life. A great example of this is that of Lazarus. Right? Imagine, if you remember the story of Lazarus. Right? He's dead. He's in the tomb. It's been four days. Imagine before Jesus came to the tomb of Lazarus, imagine Mary and Martha, they go to the tomb, Mary and Martha, and they say, Lazarus, come out. Lazarus, arise. We miss you. We want you back. Please come back to us. Come forth, Lazarus. Come forth. What would happen? Nothing. Why? Because no matter how sincere they might be, no matter how much they love him and they call out to him, he will not come forth. He doesn't have the ability to respond. He's dead. But let's place Jesus in the picture. Jesus calls out, Lazarus, come forth. And what happens? He comes forth. How is it possible? It was the same words. Mary and Martha, they're coming out. Maybe they said even more words. And they're like, please. And Jesus just comes in and he's like, come forth. And boom, he comes forth. Like, what happened? Because it's no longer just an invitation. It's no longer just an external call. But it's now an internal, effectual call. And this is what happens to the believer. Now, should we present an external and universal call? To the unbeliever? Like, should we say, come to faith and repentance in Jesus Christ? Yes! Of course we should. And it's a great privilege and responsibility to declare the gospel to those around us. But we do not have the power to save. 
What they need is for God to call them specifically. They need God's effectual call in their life. They need God to call out to the dead man and say, rise, and they will rise. How is that possible? How is it that this call can be so effective? How is God's call so certain? How do we know that if he calls, they will respond? It's really quite simple. Consider the source. God himself. God himself, the reason when God calls someone that they will respond in faith, no matter what, the reason is so effective is because it is God's call. It comes from his mouth. Anything that comes from the mouth of God will be accomplished exactly how he set it out to be accomplished. God says, let there be light, and there will be light. God says, rise, and you will rise. His call is effective. There is no denying the call of God. Whom he wants to call, he will call. Whom he wants in his fold, will be in his fold. Who he calls to his kingdom, We'll be part of his kingdom. This is the call of God to every Christian. He is the one who calls the Christian. He is the one who gives the Christian new life. Now, what is the proof of God's call? How do we know if God has called us? Well, I don't know. Did he call me or not? I don't know. Very simple. Our response. If he has truly called you, then he has given you new life. And so there will be a response. If he has truly called you, then there will be a response of genuine faith and repentance. That there will be signs of new life. How can there not be? Those whom God have called have been called out of the kingdom of darkness and into the kingdom of his marvelous light. So if you're asking, well, I don't know, did, call, did, did God call me? What has been your response? How have you responded to the gospel? Does your life reflect that of which has been called to faith in Jesus Christ and the repentance of your sins? Now be very careful. There are many who believe they've responded to God's effectual call when in reality maybe they just responded to the preacher's universal call. There are many who may hear Someone say, place your faith in Jesus and repent of your sins. And they hear this universal call. But there was no effectual call from God in their heart. Maybe they wanted to accept this call because their parents expected them to. Maybe they want to accept this call because I would much prefer heaven over hell. Maybe they want to accept this call because eh, it seems like the right thing to do. I'm about that age. I should. My brothers, sisters are doing it. Whatever it might be. There's no genuine faith in Jesus Christ. There's no genuine repentance of sin. I cannot save you. I can call you to faith and repentance. But my my call does not save. But God's call does save. And if you feel God calling you, if you you feel God impressing on your heart to place your faith in Jesus Christ, and you feel God impressing on your heart to repent of your sins, then respond to his call. He alone saves. 
he calls. Now he says, for those whom he called, he what? He also justified. So maybe you could guess the next point, which is God justified. That was a tricky one. God justified. Right, so follow the path here. He's talking about he foreknew, those he foreknew, he predestined, and those whom he predestined, he also called, and those whom he called, he also justified. And that's where we're at. Now, what does it mean to be justified? If you've been with us for some time, you may remember that we looked at this extensively in chapters 3 and 4. And you're like, oh, man, I missed those. Check out the po- – oh, we weren't doing the podcast and that. Huh? We started in chapter 5. You should have been here. Dang. Man, sorry, guys. All right. Well, in short, to be justified – need a little review. It's to be declared right. To be declared right, or in this case, to have a right standing before God. Now, why is that important to have a right standing before God? Because none of us on our own, apart from Christ, have a right standing with God. Apart from Christ, we are guilty before God. We have sinned against him. No question about it. We are guilty before him. And this guilt condemns us. It condemns us to the eternal wrath of God. The punishment and the consequence that we deserve is the wrath of God for all of eternity, forever. But, as we saw in verse 1 of chapter 8, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That is the great news of the gospel. That while we deserve this condemnation, while we deserve that, while we deserve the wrath of God, The Christian, those who are in Christ Jesus, no longer are condemned. And there's no amount of works. And there's no way that we can live a life in such a way that causes us to no longer have this condemnation. We cannot outgood, or or, is that even a word? Or outdo our condemnation. We cannot... Make things right. I'm going to make things right with God for myself. We can't do that. Nor can we just declare ourselves righteous. Because Romans 3 says no one is righteous. No, not one. Right? No matter how good you think you might be, the Bible says you have no righteousness on your own. There is no hope in yourself to make yourself right before God. But for the Christian, there is no more condemnation. We are declared right and innocent before God because of the finished work of Christ. And it's through what he accomplished, not what we accomplished, that we are justified and made right before God. And it was Christ who took our punishment on the cross that Christ bore the wrath of God on our behalf. And in exchange, we took his righteousness. The perfect, sinless life That Christ lived is now credited to the life of the Christian. We did not live it. Christ did. But we get his reward. See, it's important to understand that. That justification is not just a forgive and forget kind of thing. That God's just saying, I'm going to forgive and forget. When God justifies the Christian, he's, he's not saying that, okay, here's a bad person and now they've become good. He is declaring the bad person legally innocent, free from the penalty of the broken law, because he himself, in the person of his son, took the penalty of our breaking of the law. 
We are justified by his blood because Christ took the punishment on our behalf. And so God says the condemnation has been satisfied. It was satisfied through the blood of my son. Therefore, Christian, you are declared innocent in the courtroom of God. You, innocent. Praise be to God for his mercy and grace. For it is God who justifies us. He is the one who declares sinners as innocent. He is the one who makes us have a right standing with himself. God justified. And then he goes on to say, those whom he justified, he also glorified. And that is our final link of this chain, is that God glorified. God glorified. Now notice, when Paul speaks of glorification here, he refers to it in the past tense. Glorified. Glorified in the past. He didn't say that God will glorify the Christian or that the Christian will be glorified, but instead that God already glorified the Christian. Now, why does he speak in this way? Because there is so much confidence, there's so much assurance that the Christian will reach glory that it is spoken as a completed act. There is complete security in the promise and salvation of God. It's a done deal. It's finished. It is complete. We have already seen all those other four links. We've seen how it is God who works in the Christian by his foreknowledge, by his predestination, by calling and and justification. But it doesn't stop there. It is also God who completes the Christian in glorification. Notice it doesn't just say, we were foreknown, we were predestined. It says God, right? God foreknew, God predestined, God called, God justified, God glorified. Let's turn to Philippians 1.6. Philippians 1.6 says, And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. He will Bring us to completion. God never breaks his promises. God never goes back on his word. And so we know, Christian, we will reach glory that we are eternally secured in him. If he has begun a good work in you, then you can be assured that he will bring you to completion. There is no question that you will reach glory. God has forever secured you in his hands. God has already foreknown and predestined the Christian to be conformed into the likeness of his son, right? We we saw that in verse 29. And so while the Christian will still sin, will still fail, will still stumble, in the end, they will be with Jesus. And they will be like Jesus. Because it is God's sovereign and perfect destiny that he has already ordained for the Christian. It's connected, it's linked together. To say that we can lose our salvation is to say that God breaks his promises. That God will not complete us. That we can outsin the grace of God. Glorification is part of this chain of salvation and it cannot be broken. We are not more powerful than God. When God says he will complete us, 
When God says that those whom he justified, he also glorified, that means that our glorification, Christian, is secure. The Christian can know with all certainty and confidence that there is, as it says in 2 Corinthians 4.17, an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison that is waiting for us. It is a promise from God. And God will not go back on his promises, nor will someone keep God from keeping his promise. Christian, you will reach glory. As we close tonight, remember that there is nothing, there is nothing as sure and unbreakable as the salvation God has given to the believer. These links in the chain of salvation are indestructible. There is no one who God has foreknown that he has failed to predestine or whom he has failed to call or failed to justify or failed to glorify. God does not stop halfway, but he will complete what he started in you. Christian, you can have assurance of what is to come. You can have assurance of final victory and glorification because of the promises of God. Not because of your works. Not because you're so great. But because God has completed the work of salvation on your behalf. From eternity to eternity. From foreknowledge to glorification. God has secured your salvation for you. For a true, genuine Christian to lose their salvation would be for for God to fail. It would be for God to lie. It would be for God to to be unable to fulfill his covenant and promise that he's made to his people. It would be for man to be greater than God. It would be for sin to be greater than grace. But Christian, you have a secured salvation through the work of God. So, what does that mean for us today? A lot of head knowledge tonight, right? A lot of theological, doctrinal truths. So let's close with just a few points of application. First, for the Christian. These are for the Christian. And then we'll be done. Never forget the grace of God. Christian, never forget the grace of God. If you are a Christian and if you've listened to this message tonight and you walk away feeling like you've accomplished something great, you have completely missed the point. God is the one who works all of these things for our salvation. These links were forged in heaven, not forged by us. This was all given to the Christian by the grace of God. So we must see how gracious God is to have foreknown us, to have predestined us, to have called us, to have justified us, to have glorified us. It was not because of anything within ourselves. It was all by his grace. Why did he choose to do this for me? Why did he choose to do this for you, Christian? And not for someone else. I don't know. And sometimes thinking about that, it breaks my heart. But at the same time, it creates in me an overwhelming amount of thankfulness 
to God that he saved me purely out of his grace. That's it. I've got nothing to offer. But it's by his grace that he saved me. There is nothing, Christian, that you did to deserve his love. But if you are a Christian, you have a secured salvation in him. So remember his grace. Secondly, Christian, be passionate for the spread of the gospel. Be passionate for the spread of the gospel. There are lost sheep out there. There are those in whom he has foreknown and he has predestined. And while we cannot give an effectual call to someone, it is God's will that we would give a universal call so that others may respond to his gospel. Are you faithful in being part of the spread of the gospel? Whatever capacity that might mean for you, whether it means sharing the gospel with your family members, sharing the gospel with your classmates, who are your family members, I guess. It's the same people. <laughs> or sharing the gospel with your friends. It's probably still the same people. Dang. I don't know. Who do you talk to? Oh, the homeschool of life. My goodness. <laughs> Just people. Find people, please. Find people. And share the gospel. Be involved in world missions in any ways that you can. Pray. Be passionate for the gospel, knowing that God is still working and he is calling his people to himself. Be passionate for the gospel. And lastly, be all in on living for the kingdom of God. Be all in on living for the kingdom of God. You have been glorified, past tense. It has been secured. Christian, you are now a citizen of the kingdom of God. So don't live for the kingdom of the earth. Don't store up your treasures here. Don't live as if this is it for you. But live knowing what is waiting for you. Live boldly and sacrificially knowing what is to come. Live for the glory of God in all that you do as you live for his kingdom. Christian, your salvation is forever secure. We're going to look at that more next week. It's just kind of a tease into that. Even though it's kind of been the whole message. Because it's God's work of salvation. That's why it's secure. Because it's God's work of salvation. And he is trustworthy. And he always keeps his promises. So go with peace. And go with boldness. And go with thankfulness. And go with a heart desire to worship God. In all you do. Let me pray. God, thank you so much for your work in salvation. God, it is not in us at all, but it is all you. We thank you for your grace. God, we thank you that this salvation which you have granted to us is unbreakable. All of it. And God, that we can trust you and know with confidence that you always keep your promises and that we are forever secured in your hands. God, for those in here who do not know you, I pray that you would call them. God, that you would open their eyes to see you, that you would save them. Lord, we seek to honor and glorify you in all that we do. We ask you to strengthen us to worship you as we continue in our night. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Amen.